We are in Mark chapter 7, and admittedly, this is the end of last week's message. So for it to make any sense, um, I'm going to have to do a little bit of review. And again, I can't afford to do a whole lot here. Um, But what we have seen thus far from the Mark, the gospel writer Mark, um, his fashion, I mean, his habit in writing, his literary style in writing has been story, boom, end, no segue, new story, boom, end, no segue, new story. And it's not the finest example of literary style, if you will. But then again, Mark's purpose in writing is not to entertain or to sell books. His purpose, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is to teach. And so this morning, we're actually on, boom, a stop from last week, and we're in a new story, the new story which is going to be the last story in chapter 7. We begin in verse 31. Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to Jesus one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, Jesus said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Repetition is again another one of the hallmarks of Mark's writing style. Mark has already recorded a plethora of miracles in these first seven chapters with virtually the same outcome every time Jesus performed a miracle. And what I mean by that is not simply the healing, but what I mean by that is that Jesus told everyone to keep the miracles on the down low. Okay, what you just saw, what you just went, okay, keep it just between us. And of course, nobody ever listened. And we know from what we've already studied in this book that the reason for that was precisely because the Savior of mankind came to earth, hear this well, not to deal with all men's affliction, The Savior of all mankind did not come to earth to take care of all of men's discomforts, injustices, disappointments, and heartaches. All of those things of life which everybody experiences, which the prosperity preachers totally ignore. Rather, Jesus came for one reason. Jesus came to deal with the sin of each person, which isolates that person from a relationship with the living God right here and right now. That is, the moment that they bow their knee to Him. And He came to deal with the individual sin which separates each person from God for all of eternity. Jesus never ceased being zeroed in on the mission the Father set Him on. Even though today... The body of Christ on earth, which is what the church is, 
the church that wears Jesus' name has largely forgotten that. In many of today's churches, not only is there willful disdain for the righteous character of God, and as a result of that, they virtually declare almost everything moral, except possibly some of their hobby horses like don't eat little innocent animals, and filling your car up with that evil, wretched gas, or having the audacity to question the religion of global warming. Those things today are immoral. And yet, there is that glaring omission of the reality of sin and its devastating effect on the individual and on the world and on mankind. In many of today's churches, hell is not even a real place. And then, of course, there's that hateful notion that some people will not end up in heaven. And that's never even entertained. So, yes, Mark is needfully repetitious. So, with all the miracles that we've seen already, what is the point now of Mark's recording the healing of the deaf mute for posterity? Let's look at the context that this now final story, this last miracle in chapter 7, occurs in light of what we've already seen. Well, what precedes this story? It's what we talked about last week. It's about the Syrophoenician woman, also known as a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish person. And as far as God is concerned, there are only two types of people in the whole world. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. Period. Or there are Jews and Gentiles. The story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, I noted, was a difficult passage to work with in that Jesus' reply to the mother who comes to him humbly and in desperate need is not the kind of reply we expect of a compassionate Savior. To the modern day reader, it is actually quite shocking. It's even embarrassing. The mother asks for Jesus' help with her demonized daughter. And Jesus, through Mark and through the Gospel writer Matthew's account of the story, they record that Jesus came to the lost house of Israel. That is, meaning, underscoring, Jesus is distinctly the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Savior. And so his sharp reply to the woman kind of follows that motif. We read, Jesus says to her, It is not good to take the children's bread, referring to the Jews and the Jewish Messiah, and to throw it to the dogs, referring to the woman, that is, to all non-Jews. It doesn't belong to you. I came for the Jews only. But through careful exegesis, we discovered that Jesus' response is positively brilliant. In that, he first toes the Old Testament line of what I will call Jewish exceptionalism. That means that the Jews really are special. And by the way, the Jews still today really are special. goes back to the Old Testament. Don't have time to get into that. But to make sense of this, we needed to note that Jesus, as I said, was in fact sent to the house of Israel. But, 
in the salvation history of the timeline occurring between the Old Testament and the New Testament, things are changing. But I don't want to use that word uh, in a misleading way. Things are not changing as if God said, okay, well, here's the way I was doing it here in the Old Testament, now we're going to do it this way in the New Testament. No, rather things are better because they are coming now to completion. What God always intended in the Old Testament is now we're seeing the fulfillment of that and it being fleshed out as we get into the New Testament and beyond. That is, God's comprehensive plans for salvation of all of mankind are being filled out. So what better way to punctuate that fact than to seemingly, remember who his audience is right now, than to seemingly reiterate the Jewishness of the Jewish Messiah, kind of get them eating out of his hand, but then pulling the rug right out from under them, making the point that Jesus only ever came as the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all of mankind. The Syrophoenician woman comes back at Jesus with the reply that duly impresses Jesus. She says, Oh, I understand that you're the Jewish Messiah. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I understand that. The dogs being her, a Gentile. How offensive is that? But, she says, even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And instead of blasting her and dismissing her as the disciples asked Jesus to do, she receives instead the blessing of the Jewish Messiah. He heals her demonized daughter, and Jesus very effectively then makes the point, which is a deeply theological point, that even though a Gentile, her faith was great. And so the Jewish Messiah answers the Gentile's plea for a miracle for the purpose of showing that the door of salvation is opening to everyone. And Mark, like I said, very abruptly, boom, end of story. He takes us to the next vignette, which can seem, again, needlessly repetitious. Because Jesus again comes to rest in another cootie-ridden land of the Gentiles where he meets a Gentile deaf-mute. New material. Without any fanfare and without actually trying to downplay what is going to transpire, Jesus removes the Gentile mute from the crowds and with the disciples in tow, he prepares now to do another miracle, to heal this Gentile man. This Jewish Messiah is going to be the Redeemer of this Gentile man. My question then is, why does Mark include the details that he does in this particular vignette in Jesus performing the miracles? And I'm talking now to the details of Jesus sticking his fingers in the guy's ears and putting his own spittle on the man's tongue. Well, I have to admit that my speculations here, my observations rather, are speculative because the text does not tell us. So these are simply 
my ideas that seem potentially reasonable, but they may, may, they may be totally worthless. Observation number one. Why those details? Because Jesus doesn't have a ritualized formula for his healings. What I mean by that is every time Jesus heals somebody, he does something different. He doesn't follow a formula. Sometimes he simply touches a person, or the person just touches him. Sometimes Jesus makes mud and puts it on blind eyes. Sometimes he merely speaks a word to the person. Other times, he isn't even in the presence of the person who needs to be healed, but simply tells the person asking on that one's behalf, your loved one is healed. And I'm thinking there about the centurion who asked for Jesus to heal his servant who was far away at the centurion's home. My observation is how different Jesus' healings are from what we see reprehensibly portrayed in the carnival atmospheres of some of today's healing services. Next observation. Three times already in these seven chapters, we hear Jesus announce that if anyone has ears, let him hear. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So... Perhaps Jesus, by sticking his fingers in this man's ear, is simply accentuating the point that hearing the voice of God comes only directly from divine, in this case, Jesus' intervention. That's theologically reasonable, John chapter 6, verse 44, because no one comes to the Father unless he is drawn by the Spirit. Observation number three, the man could not speak clearly, remember? The fact that the man was also unable to speak intelligibly, Jesus takes care of that as well. And that may be, don't know, but that may be an allusion to something that the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 35 of his book. Isaiah's words in the context were specifically about the the awaited coming Redeemer. This is what we read in Isaiah 35 and 36. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Finally, why does Mark give the detail that Jesus looked up to heaven with a deep sigh? I thought about that for a while. I tried to draw from the, the well of you know decades of reading the entirety of Scripture, and I still wasn't coming up with anything that I thought was too worthwhile. And so I was curious of maybe of what others thought on the issue, and so I did a little bit of research there, and I didn't find anything that anyone really had to say on the matter worth 
repeating because it was also just wild speculation. So the answer, my answer at any rate is, I don't know. What I do know is this, is that Mark has been relentless in repeating the theme that Jesus never lost sight of his purpose in coming to earth. He never buckled to the intense pressures to conform to the Jewish expectation. And that was a reasonable expectation. And he didn't buckle to ever act in a certain way to meet someone's expectations. He never buckled to even stay on in a certain area where they had only perhaps scratched the surface of the needs of the people. And I'm thinking specifically there to the incident that we saw in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark way back when. You might remember the incident with the disciples who were hunting Jesus down in the middle of the night because he was missing and they couldn't find him. And the people were clamoring, we need Jesus, we need the miracle worker. He's been doing all these wonderful miracles and we still got all these people who are afflicted. And the disciples run in a panic and say, Jesus, what are you doing out here all by yourself? The people still need you. Come on and return with us. And Jesus says what is profound in verse 38 of chapter 1, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Wait, no, Jesus. No, we're here to bring you back to the town we've been in. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Why? So that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Remember what I said earlier about coming to heal all the afflictions, injustices, heartaches, etc. That's not why Jesus came the first time. He will deal with those things the second time. And the fact that this occurred in the very first chapter of this gospel, I believe is to set the entire stage for the rest of the book. For us to keep that singular fact in mind as the overriding theme of the whole book. So, Jesus never lost sight of his purpose in coming. And Jesus never lost sight of his compassion for people. Now, after what I just said, that may seem contradictory. We've seen time and again, just in these first seven chapters, that Jesus never let his compassion for the individual eclipse the grand purpose of his coming for all of mankind, as he does in chapter 1. But he never lost sight of either the mission or his compassion for everyone. It is a huge temptation and a, I would say probably a repetitive challenge to pastors, not just along the line once in a while, but all through pastoral ministry. And that is that the needs of the people of one's church are so constant, they are so continuous, they are so ever with the pastor that pastors time and again, and myself included, 
start to get weary and start to get just tired of people. And in your weak moments and in your fatigued and exhausted moments, you think, you know, pastoral ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. (laughs) The church of Jesus Christ would be fantastic if it wasn't for the people. And you got to think about that. And it's like, what are you saying? The people are the mission. Yes, they are. And so we walk that tightrope of the mission given to us by God, which is for the sake of mankind. But never lose sight with compassion for the individual. Jesus was the master of it. And Jesus, sometimes, as we've seen, did the hard thing and had to turn his back and walk away from the clamoring crowds. I think that probably had to be really difficult for him. But he did it because there was an even more important issue, and that was the sins of the entire world and the need for the good news. Let me have you stand. Next week, Resurrection Sunday. I hope you're here. It's going to be different. And I am just, again, I'm really, I am honestly more psyched than usual about the message. Because it actually takes a lot of what we've been talking about in Mark, even though it's not from the Gospel of Mark at all. It will be from Genesis and Romans. And it will expand, I trust, your appreciation of the incredible, phenomenal God that we serve. Father in heaven, thank you. You are a great God. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you perfectly, when you came, kept the mission and the people always in the perfect balance. We do not. We need help with that. And so we just pray, thanking you, looking forward to being thrilled by your words to us again concerning your plan for mankind. Thank you. In your name we give thanks and praise. Amen.